I'd invite you to open your Bibles up with me to Revelation chapter 6. And we came through chapter 5 last week. We will break into chapter 6, but as you can see, probably only going to get through a couple of verses this morning. But we're also going to get a broad overview of the next several chapters, chapters 6 through 18, which outline this period known as the Tribulation. And in these chapters, 6 through 18, we'll see three series of judgments poured out on the earth. We'll see the seal, or also known as the scroll judgments. We'll see the trumpet judgments, and we'll see the bowl judgments. And before we dig too deeply into these first two verses of chapter 6, I want to take some time to understand this period of the tribulation as a whole. And there are a few key questions that we'll seek to answer here in the next several minutes. The first is, what is the tribulation? The second is, why does the tribulation occur? And the third is, who does the tribulation affect? These are all important questions for us to consider as believers. Now, the first question, what is the tribulation? The tribulation goes by many names in Scripture, but this term, the tribulation, is by far the most widely used. And this phrasing was used by Jesus in Matthew 24, but this is not the most descriptive name of this time period. I've got a few listed for you on the screen. The tribulation is also known as the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 37, that is chapter 30, verse 7. The day of the Lord, from Isaiah 2.12. The day of the vengeance of God, Isaiah 34.8 and 63, 1-6. The 70th week of Daniel, Daniel 9.24-27. And we'll be looking at these, the 70 weeks prophecy more as we go along today. The great day of his wrath, Revelation 6.17, the hour of his judgment, Revelation 14.7, the end of this age, Matthew 13.40 and 49, the indignation, Isaiah 26.20 and 34.2, and the time of troubles as never before in Daniel 12.1. So we can take a lot from all of these names but we're not going to get into that too much. But you'll see some things pop up in our discussion this morning that you can relate back to these names. Simply put, the tribulation is a time of intense distress on the whole earth, which occurs during a seven-year time period or time frame. Jesus described this tribulation as a time of distress, quote, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. That's from Matthew 24, 21. So the distress during this period of time is going to be like has never been seen before. It's going to be something entirely new. And we can refer to Daniel 9, where he lays out his prophecy of the 70 weeks, to get some further clarification on the timeline involved with this tribulation. 
The Hebrew term translated as weeks in some of our Bibles should be translated as sevens or as heptads. This term doesn't ascribe a unit to the sevens. Okay, so when we see the 70 weeks, in context, we can understand that to be 70 periods or heptads of seven years. So there are 70 periods of seven years. It's kind of like when we say a dozen. You can have a dozen days, a dozen weeks, a dozen months, a dozen years. And that's based on the context in which you place the word dozen. In this context, Daniel is describing 70 periods of seven years each. Now, it's very important to realize that these 70 weeks are outlining the prophetic history of the nation Israel. That's very important. Daniel 9.24, at the very beginning of his prophecy of 70 weeks, he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, referring to the nation of Israel. The first 69 periods of seven years have already been fulfilled, and we are now living in a sort of prophetic gap between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70th week. The 69th week concluded with the crucifixion of Christ. And from the crucifixion of Christ until the man of sin, a.k.a. the Antichrist, confirms a covenant with Israel is the period Isaiah refers to as the year of the Lord's favor. And year meaning time frame. So this is the Christian dispensation, this gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. That is the age of grace or the church age that we're living in now. Now, if you take these these 70 weeks, you see this gap between the 69th and 70th, you can effectively insert that prophetic profile from chapters 2 and 3, the church history, into that gap between the 69th and 70th week. And you have Israel, a brief pause for the church, and then it finishes up with Israel. And so the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy is what we refer to as the tribulation. And it's important to note that when we get past the church age and the tribulation starts, God is dealing with Israel. The 70 weeks outline the prophetic history of the nation Israel. During these seven years of the tribulation, there will be great judgments poured out on the earth by God. And these are detailed in chapters 6 through 8 in the book of Revelation. These three series of judgments follow a very specific literary structure. And we call this structure a heptatic structure. And it just means it's a structure of sevens. And we've got a graphic up here to help you kind of conceptualize that. But This heptatic structure of revelation can be seen all throughout the unfolding of the tribulation. We are introduced to the seven-sealed scroll in chapter 5, and we looked at that a couple weeks ago. And in chapter 6, we see the first six of its seals opened. 
Then in chapter 7, we get a brief pause from these judgments. And the focus shifts from the judgments to the 144,000 sealed of Israel. And it also mentions the tribulation saints. And then that last seal, the seventh seal, is opened in the beginning of chapter 8. And I like to picture these judgments as fireworks going off in the air. You'll see a firework shoot up. It'll explode, in this case, into seven pieces. And then one of those pieces will explode into seven more pieces. And then one of those into seven more pieces. And you can see that kind of illustrated right here. Um, From the seventh scroll comes the seven trumpets. From the seventh trumpet comes the seven bowls. And they unfold in kind of this symphony of judgment, if you will. And so this is what we'll see as we move forward into this time of tribulation in our text. Now, moving on to our next question we want to address this morning, why does the tribulation occur? Now, this is something that everyone comes to, you know, this question, if you're studying the tribulation. And again, Daniel 9 can give us some insight into why the tribulation has to occur. In verse 24, Daniel writes, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. This verse is talking about the whole 70 weeks together, but as the 70th week, it does include the tribulation. So these are reasons in general, for the whole 70 weeks, the whole history of Israel. But we can definitely lump the tribulation in there because the tribulation um, is the punctuation to the history of Israel. It's the wrapping of it all up. And for that reason, these reasons given by Daniel also apply to the tribulation. The first reason he lays out is to finish the transgression. Now, this time of tribulation will put an end to the transgression of Israel. What is that transgression? Very simply, it's the rejection of their Messiah. That is the transgression of Israel. And during the time of tribulation, great numbers of Jews will turn to their Messiah. It will be a great revival among Israel. The second reason outlined by Daniel, to make an end of sins. And this make an end literally means to seal up sins. At the end of this period, Satan will be bound. And this will, in effect, seal up sin. We know that Satan will be loosed for a short period of time and then cast into the lake of fire. Sin will be sealed up. The third reason, to make reconciliation for iniquity. And I think this is another reference to Israel finally turning to her Messiah. 
that they had previously cast aside and asked Pilate to crucify. Fourth, to bring in everlasting righteousness. And I see this as a reference to when Christ will return to set up his thousand-year reign on earth. This tribulation period is the antecedent to the millennial reign of Christ. It sets up the millennial reign. The fifth reason, to seal up vision and prophecy. And I think that this purpose is twofold. First, there will be no need for visions or prophecies once Israel is brought into Christ. And second, this time period is the punctuation to all the Old and New Testament prophecies relating to it. The tribulation is a huge topic in the Old Testament. You can find it throughout Jeremiah, Isaiah, and other prophetical books. This is the wrapping up of all those prophecies. The sealing up of vision and prophecy. And I wrote in my notes, it's literally a time period because it's a punctuation to those things. I like to think of it that way. It seals up and fulfills all those prophecies pointing to it. The last reason given by Daniel is to anoint the most holy. And I believe this is another reference to the millennial kingdom, which is, in effect, the consummation of the tribulation. This is when the most holy will be anointed as the rightful heir and the ruler of the earth. And moving into our last question, who does the tribulation affect? As I hope you've been able to see, this time of tribulation is specifically aimed at one people group. Now this is going to be audience participation here. What people group is that? The nation Israel. God's people. He is bringing them back in, and it's going to take some shaking. It's not going to be a fun time. Uh, It's going to be distress like has never been seen before, but it's with purpose. Now, though it is aimed at that people group, its scope will certainly be global. And I, I want to make sure that we make that clear. It will affect the entire inhabited earth. Remember back in Revelation 3.10, in Jesus' letter to the church in Philadelphia, he promises to keep them from out of the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. This is referring to the tribulation. This trial is coming upon the whole world to test the earth dwellers. Now, in that same verse, Christ promises to keep the faithful in the church of Philadelphia out from the hour of trial. Not to keep them through the hour of trial or to keep them from the trial itself, but he specifically says he will keep them from the entire time period of that trial the hour of trial. They won't even be on the earth 
for this time period, but they will be removed before the wrath of God is poured out onto the earth. The faithful will be caught up to heaven before the events of the tribulation unfold. Now, we also have a picture of this at the beginning of chapter 4 in Revelation, when John is snatched up to heaven in order to witness the events on earth unfold during the tribulation. So, the tribulation will befall everyone on the earth, but the church will be taken out before all of that goes down. And by the way, I want to note, if you don't regard the church and Israel as separate entities, all of this gets jumbled up into a big mess. You have to recognize that God has different plans and different destinies for both the church and for the nation of Israel. That's so important to understanding this and much of Bible prophecy. And there you have your crash course on the tribulation this morning. Now, you didn't know it, but you've just been given a head start in understanding what's happening in Revelation 6. And that's where we're going to focus our attention this morning. So let's read about these first four seals that are broken open. And then we'll zoom in on just the first seal. Join me in Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Now, that pale horse, the word pale is chloros in Greek, and that means a very opaque green type of color. So it it symbolizes death. So you think of this zombie green that we call it today, and you make that a little bit see-through. That's kind of what we're thinking, this chloros, this pale horse, livid 
is another translation of it. So let's look at these horsemen. Uh, we've got a graphic for you on these horsemen. The white horse, we're going to find out this morning, is representing the Antichrist. The red horse is representing war that is coming on the earth. The red is blood, bloodshed from the war. The black horse symbolizes famine. Um, another way to look at it is economic distress. That black rider of the horse has a pair of balances, scales in his hand. This signals the economic downturn. This livid, the pale green horse, signifies death. And it's interesting that the rider of the pale horse uses the instruments of all the others um, to bring about this death. Now, these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And you might have heard of that term used somewhere extra biblically, somewhere in the world, even literature and pop culture have latched onto this theme of the horsemen of the apocalypse. And they all make reference to these things. Of course, it's not necessarily biblically accurate reference, but pop culture still references these horses and their riders. Now, an interesting comparison can be made between Revelation 6 and Matthew 24, which is Jesus's Olivet Discourse. If we look and compare these two passages, we see a lot of similarities. In Revelation 6, 1 and 2, we have the rider on the white horse, and he represents the Antichrist, which is a false Christ. In Matthew 24, verses 4 through 5, Jesus says, there will be false Christs. In Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4, we have this red horse, and it signifies war. In Matthew 24, 6, Jesus says there will be wars. In Revelation 6, 5 and 6, we have this black horse, and it signifies famine or economic distress. In Matthew 24, 7, at the beginning of that verse, Jesus says there will be famines. In Revelation 6, verses 7 and 8, we have this pale horse, which signifies death. In Matthew 24, 7, second part of that verse, and verse 8, Jesus says there will be death. And if we read on through chapter 6 of Revelation, we'll see martyrs and worldwide chaos are mentioned. The martyrs are mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 24, 9, and worldwide chaos is mentioned in Matthew 24, 10, 13, and 29. Now, you'll also notice that these follow the same order through both of these passages. First, you have the false Christ, then the wars, famines, death, martyrs, and worldwide chaos. An interesting comparison to be made. Now, this 
next thing I'm going to give you, I don't want to make too much of it, but I'll let you decide what to do with it. But it's an interesting note that the colors white, red, black, and green all show up on the flags of the Islamic states. So consider that. I don't know what to make of it, but interesting nonetheless. Now, zooming in on chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. This first writer is the subject of some confusion amongst students of the Bible. So we're going to read these two verses one more time, then we'll look at it a little bit closer. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. This rider comes on a white horse, and he comes to conquer. That should ring a bell. That sounds like Jesus coming on a white horse to conquer. In fact, Jesus does come on a white horse, but that event is recorded in Revelation 19, not Revelation 6. This is not Jesus Christ. And I believe that this is the second most dangerous case of mistaken identity. The first most dangerous case of mistaken identity is, has to do with the person of Jesus Christ himself. Who you say Jesus is determines your eternal well-being. Who do you say I am? He asked his disciples. Peter effectively and correctly answered, I You are the son of God. And it was on that confession that Jesus said, I will build my church. That is the rock, the confession that Jesus is the son of God. But the second most dangerous mistaken identity is this writer, the Antichrist or the man of sin. Who you say this rider on a white horse is could maybe determine your eternal destiny. If you find yourself missing your ride off the earth and you come faced with a decision to take this guy's mark or to die, your eternity would be in balance. Now, remember in John 5.43 when Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Wow. We know from other places in scripture that this man, the Antichrist, will come in his own name. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And it's amazing how many commentators this writer has already fooled. 
The word antichrist is descriptive of what this man will be like. The word comes from two Greek roots, anti and Christos. Anti means opposed to or instead of. And Christos is obviously Christ. The Antichrist will fulfill both definitions of anti by being both opposed to Christ and by putting himself up as Christ, the instead of Christ. That's what it means by Antichrist. This writer will imitate Christ, but he is not Christ. And that's the point. And that's why. He's good at his job. He even fools some of these Christian commentators that write about him. Now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. It's important to note, too, that Jesus is the one in heaven opening the seals. He can't be the writer here. He's not in heaven opening the seals and on this horse riding in. Also look at the company that this guy keeps. You know, war, famine, disease, death. That's pretty bad company. And Jesus does not keep that kind of company. And he would not be leading the charge of all of these aforementioned things. Jesus will come back with good company, you and I. He will come back with his bride. I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. The come of come and see is erko which means proceed. So this living creature is telling this horseman to go ahead and proceed. But I believe that he's also telling John to come and see, witness, the going forth of this first horseman. And here's another good reason that the horseman isn't Christ. It's not appropriate for the living creature to call forth Christ. All right, Jesus, go ahead and proceed on the earth. The living creature is created by Christ. He has no authority over him. Christ doesn't need permission from this living creature to proceed in his plan. Through the opening of the first four seals, we see horses. There has to be some kind of significance um, surrounding these horses. But why a horse? Um, Horses are often used to designate judgments. And we see that that theme throughout Scripture. In 2 Kings 6, 15-18, Jeremiah 46, 9 and 10, Joel 2, 3-11, Nahum 3, 1 through 7, Zechariah 1, 8 through 11, and 6, 1 through 7. And these are a few examples of horses denoting judgments. And several of these references, I think, are speaking of 
the day of the Lord. And I want you to check me on this. Uh, Do your own homework. Though they were writing in their own historical context, I think that several of these writers were led by the Holy Spirit to prophesy about this event in Revelation, the horsemen of the apocalypse. So I'll give you a little bit longer to jot those references down. You can see what you think about that. We see that two things are specifically pointed out about this rider on the white horse. In verse 2, and I looked and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had one, a bow, and two, a crown, which was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, there's a couple views surrounding this bow. And we'll look at both of them, but I will tell you up front, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I think that it's okay. and I actually tend to take a combination of these views, and you'll see what I mean. It'll all make sense. The rider carries a bow, but no arrows are mentioned. This could be a sign that he comes with peace, not with war. He will conquer with peace. In a time of great economic and political distress, upheaval, and certainly wars and rumors of wars, there will be much to gain by promising people peace. And that's exactly what this guy's plan is. That's his plan of attack. He conquers with peace, and he'll be welcomed into the political climate, and peace will be his instrument of conquering. Look at Daniel 9.25 with me, and I'm going to read this in the King James Version. It says, And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. It says that this man, the man of sin, will destroy many by peace. That's his plan. A bow, but no arrows. Now, others tend to see this bow as a sign of a covenant. And this is one of the reasons I think that they fit together well, peace and a covenant. And we know that this covenant that the Antichrist will make with Israel is going to be a covenant of peace between them. Now, in this view, the bow is not necessarily a bow used for archery. And let me clarify, the Hebrew word used for rainbow in Genesis 9.13, if you remember when God makes his promise to never again destroy the earth with a flood, that word is used over 70 times in the Old Testament as an archery term. In Genesis 9.13, it's translated rainbow 
as talking about the rainbow. It's used only three times with meanings other than an archery meaning in the whole Old Testament. And that instance in Genesis 9.13 is the first time that that word shows up in Scripture. Now, there's a law of first mention, and this is basically just saying that when something is mentioned for the first time in the Bible, that mention of it turns out to be relevant to its future usage and meaning. So when we see this word, um, it's kesheth in the Hebrew, for rainbow, when it's used the first time, that gives us clues as to its subsequent meaning and usage. In this first use, it is no doubt seen as a sign of God's covenant with man to never again destroy the earth with water. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the word toxon to translate the Hebrew kesheth, rainbow. In Genesis 9.13, toxon is the same word that's used in our text this morning. He carried with him a bow. That is toxon. So the same word is used in our text. He who sat on it had a bow that is used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, kesheth, rainbow. So there is a parallel there. He who sat on it had a bow. What kind of bow that is, I'm not sure. But I think that you could still see it as an archery bow. That's not necessarily um, thrown out with this viewpoint. Um, But the main point of this view is that it's seen as a sign of a covenant. And we know that the Antichrist will come with a covenant. And when he makes that covenant with Israel, that marks the beginning of the tribulation. That is the event that when you see that, you think, okay, the timeline has started. The clock is ticking to the glorious appearing of Christ, which will come seven years after that. It's possible that this bow in the hand of the rider of the white horse is a sign of this covenant, just like the first mention of the rainbow. And if this is the case, then it's also an important identification of the rider. We know that the Antichrist will strike up this peace treaty with Israel, but he will break it in the middle of that covenant after three and a half years. Daniel 9.27, in that prophecy of 70 weeks, provides a timeline of these events for us. He writes, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. He, referring to Antichrist, the many, referring to Israel. Then he shall confirm a covenant with Israel for one week, but in the middle of the week, that is after three and a half years, remember the week is seven years. So after three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. That is, he will break the covenant 
that he makes with Israel. Apparently, the covenant that he makes has something to do with allowing them to reinstitute their sacrifices. In the middle of that covenant, he will bring an end to those sacrifices. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. This is a week of years. We know a period of seven years. The covenant is confirmed by Antichrist for seven years, but after the first three and a half, he violates that covenant and causes the sacrifices to stop. This is the event that's termed the abomination of desolation. And there are plenty of references that will allow you to track down exactly what that will look like, but we're not going to spend our time on that this morning. Um, Additionally, the bow apparently symbolized the first world leader, that is Nimrod, that we see in Genesis 10, 8, and 9. And it says that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord, the bow being his main uh, weapon for hunting. The final world leader will also be symbolized by a bow. And we see that here. And he is also an Assyrian, just like Nimrod. So we have this man riding in, bringing peace, a covenant, and he also has a crown on his head. And our text says that a crown was given to him. Now, this crown in the Greek is Stephanos. There are two words for crown, Stephanos and what is the diadem. And they mean slightly different things. The Stephanos is a victor's crown. It's something like a laurel or a small wreath that they would give to games winners. And you you all have pictures of that in your mind from studying Greek mythology. That is a Stephanos. That's what this rider is wearing. That's his crown. And it says that the crown was given to him, just like they would present a crown to a winner of the games. But in Revelation 19, Christ comes wearing a crown, a diadem, using the different word for crown, not a Stephanos. A diadem is reserved for sovereigns or rulers. It's an ornate crown, something like we would picture when we think of the crown of a king. A diadem is reserved for the king of kings and the lord of lords. And I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow, a sign of a covenant, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. And we know that this man, the Antichrist or the man of sin, will issue in a one-world type of government 
and he will be aided. There are two beasts in Revelation. There's the beast, the Antichrist, and there's the beast, the false prophet. There are two beasts working in a concerted effort to bring along this plan. They're both empowered by Satan, but they do slightly different things. He went out conquering and to conquer. The false prophet, which we refer to as the second beast, will be the leader of religion. He'll be the one that kind of gathers every world religion together into this conglomerate of religion. And he will aim all of those religions toward the first beast. And he will direct worship to the first beast. And he is the one that will be worshipped. We'll be getting into all of this as we move into uh, later chapters in Revelation. So we're going to pause our discussion of that for now. But I want you to consider something as we wrap up. I want you to consider what good is studying the book of Revelation? Why does it even matter to us? You know, it's, it's pretty easy to see how chapters 1 and especially 2 and 3 can relate to us. You know, we are the church. We're living in the midst of the church age. We can apply those things lickety-split. But what good is studying prophecy like this? Does it even matter? Why am I spending time on a Sunday morning to get you to look at these things? I want you to turn back in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Revelation 1, 3 reads, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Revelation is the only book of the Bible that has the audacity to specify itself as a book that you will be blessed by. Plenty of scripture tells you to read the Bible as a whole and be blessed by it, but Revelation is the only book that specifies those who read this, hear it, and keep it will be blessed. Now, reads... That's me this morning, you if you read it at home. Hears, that's you this morning, and I can hear myself, so I'll throw myself in there as well. And keeps those things which are written in it. How do you keep a book of prophecy? This whole thing is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This whole book focuses on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is the beginning and end of all things. All of creation comes from him, through him, and to him. Jesus Christ is the center. And when we study these things, they should inform how we live. That's the reason that we study Revelation. You know, we're going to be getting into things 
that are going to make you think, hmm, I just saw something on the news yesterday, and it looks like something that he's talking about here in Revelation. Things are getting close. They're beginning to wrap up. If you look at the direction that we're moving just in the world, you very quickly realize it can't move in this direction much longer. There is an end point that we're working towards. The end point I'm working towards is the rapture. And different people have different views about that. But that is the blessed hope that I have. Not to go through these terrible times of tribulation. That's not a blessed hope. We study Revelation because it has the ability to inform how we live. If the world governments are starting to coalesce, if the religions are getting ecumenical on us, we know that that comes after the rapture of the church. If those things are starting to come together, how much closer are we to meeting our Savior in the air? How much closer can we get? And that hopeful expectation should inform how we live our lives. Are we going to be ready to meet the bridegroom? Look at Matthew 25. Read that this week. Matthew 25 talks about the virgins who some were prepared and some were not. When we read Revelation, it should spur us on to preparation, to meet the groom. Let that inform how you live this week. Ponder on it. Pray about it. Let's close this morning's study in a word of prayer.